Good morning. Uh, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. If you're new with us, uh, just thanks for being here this morning. We're blessed that you guys are here. Uh, this morning, we're going to pick back up in Matthew chapter 24. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll dive right in. Jesus, we come before you this morning. We thank you for opportunities like this. Um, even as we sit here this morning, the sun's beating down outside. Lord, I just feel blessed to live where we do. I feel blessed, God, to be part of the church that you've given us, these amazing people. And I just pray this morning, Jesus, as we turn our hearts to you, God, that you be the one to speak to us. Lord, use your word to challenge us and convict us, to encourage us. I pray this morning, God, that um, as we turn our hearts to you, Lord, that you would cause transformation to happen within us. And uh, Jesus, we give this time to you, and we pray that you're honored uh, through the rest of our service in your name. Amen. Awesome. Um, this morning, I'm going to jump right in because we have a pretty big se section to go through this morning, but this morning is pretty much a continuation from last week, and we're in this section of the book of Matthew where Jesus has started talking about the end times or the end of days, and uh, we all know that that's a hotly debated subject, right? If you grew up in the church, you know there's multiple perspectives on this, and so last week talked about some of that, um, and I also talked about last week how many have become so fearful of this end times discussion, mainly because our, our context and our framework for uh, those discussions is not based off of what we actually read in Scripture. What does the Lord have to say about his coming in the end? And most of our frameworks, like our, our ideologies, are actually based off of things we've seen in movies or books, things we've heard through sermons and through podcasts. Uh, if you grew up in the church, you were t probably taught a very specific ideology with regards to end times. And then maybe later in life, if you, as you started reading the Bible for yourselves, you, you found that what you were taught, what you were told, didn't even line up with what you were reading. And that's because uh, somewhat our, our Western concepts of the end times have been developed by people that, look, that took a ton of creative liberty to sort of try to wrap their brains around the subject um, and try to figure out what the heck scripture was teaching. And so uh, one of my first experiences in a youth group, I was probably 12 years old, sixth grade-ish, and I walk into this youth group uh, for, my, for, for the first time. I remember walking in, and the youth pastor says, we're going to watch a movie tonight. And I'm thinking, like, rad, you know, like, come to youth group, and we watch movies. And we sit down, and the guy proceeds to show this movie uh, that was created in the 70s. This, was, this would have been 1990-ish for me, a movie that was created in the 70s called Thief in the Night. Anybody ever see that movie? Oh, my gosh. As a sixth grader. I'm watching this and my eyes are just like, what in the world is going on? Like, the, it, it scared the living daylights out of me. And so I, I'm not recommending or suggesting that you go watch that movie after service today, um, but it does exist. Uh, it scared the living daylights out of me. To this day, I can't get images from that movie out of my head. And th this was written by well-meaning Christians trying to give their depiction of what 
the end times would actually be like. And I remember years later trying to scour my Bible to find the things that I saw in the movie and make sense of them, only to realize that they had uh, like a framework for a specific sort of eschatological position when they made that movie, but then they took a bunch of creative liberty on their own to sort of expand on that, make this movie off of it, and so much of it, like, you, it wasn't even founded in Scripture. Like, you start reading the Word for yourself, and you're like, where did they get that part? And what about that part? And, and I can't make sense of this. And you start reading it for yourself and, and realizing it's way more confusing than they made it out to be in the movies. Likewise, I remember being in Bible college when the first Left Behind movie came out in the year 2000. Anybody remember that movie? And I remember going to the theaters. I was living in Seattle to go see this movie and thinking it had to be biblical truth because so many Christians had developed their positions based off of these books that were created. And I'll never forget one scene in the movie particularly where there's this diesel truck in the middle of the road and there's this car accident that had taken place. And when the camera pans by the driver's side of the truck, the doors open and there's clothes like draped over the driver's seat in this diesel truck because the driver's been raptured and he's disappeared. And, um, and I remember sitting there, like I'm probably 20 years old at the time, and I remember thinking two things. Like one, I'm thinking, um, when we're raptured, I, I assume that like Jesus just leaves our clothes behind because he's not big enough to take those with us. You know, like that's just strange. And two, like the driver's side of the truck, the door was open and I'm like, so Jesus, removes our clothes, opens the door, and then he like takes us up. Like, this is, this is just strange to me. And, and yet like now 20 years later, like that's what I go to when I think about like end times, you know? I'm like, that's what's gonna happen, you know? Like, and I remember like people getting walked back behind the black curtains into the guillotines in the Thief in the Night movie, and there's all these things. And, and so I'm not here to like discredit any of that because Again, written by people that have a very specific position and then take a lot of creative liberty to develop that position, to present it to us in a, in a dramatic, like, movie form. Nothing necessarily wrong with that, but what you have to understand as a believer is that really your call is to go to the Word yourself, to test all things, right? Even the things I'm sharing with you guys, like, don't take them as biblical truth. Like, I'm trying my best to parse this stuff, but really, you guys have been given the word of God, and you've been given the Holy Spirit to read it yourself and to decipher, to discern for yourselves what it is God is saying. Unfortunately, you know, statistics hold true, 80% of the church people that profess to be followers of Jesus will not open their Bibles on a weekly basis. And, and so, again, that's not like a condemnatory thing, but that's to say, like, if what we're developing our ideologies are and our ideas about God, who he is, how he works, what the end looks like, if we're developing those based on just things that we see, just things that we hear coming from well-meaning people that we're going to believe what they say is biblical truth, then we've got another thing coming for us. Because God actually wants you to get into his word and parse some of this out for yourself, to figure out what it actually says. And so when you watch those things, you know what is actually truth and what's creative liberty. And you can parse those things out for yourselves. Um, there's my rant. So open up to Matthew 24. Uh, we're going to be in verses 32 to 51 this morning. 
And while you're turning there, I'll say this. Um, most of you know this, but we're, we're living in extremely uncertain times, aren't we? Like crazy, unprecedented times. And even though that's a bit of sort of like an overused and worn out phrase to say we're living in uncertain times, I'm really confident that it's appropriate to use that phrase to explain the times we're living in because we're living in a time when our nation's economy is uncertain. Like, we're not at all certain that even those who are proposing to fix it actually can, right? Like, we're living in uncertain times. We're, we're living in a time where, with new governmental leadership, both locally and nationally for us, we don't know what's gonna happen. It, it leads us to sort of being fairly unsure about the shape of our government in the future, the shape of our country in the future, of our city, of our state. And we're living at this time even where when it comes down to moral character, the moral character of our culture is literally being dismantled on a daily basis. Like it's all deteriorating and we're at this time where we can't even be certain that the standards of right and wrong that our parents and that our grandparents took for granted will even be recognizable or enforced in another 10 years. Like, it's crazy times that we're living in. And I'm sure that most of you sense that uncertainty of the times that we're living in. And though I wish we could sort of look ahead and say what things will look like exactly in, in a short while, whether or, or whether or not it will be for good, whether or not it will be for bad, like, we can't. But what we can say is in the midst of all this uncertainty, what we can affirm this morning with absolute certainty, something that you and I can hang on to, something that we can be anchored to, that we can draw our confidence and joy from, is that no matter what may happen in the short term in this life, Jesus is actually coming back to reign on this earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, amen? We know that to be true, like he will come back. And maybe it's sooner than later, who, who knows at this point. But what's absolutely certain and can actually carry us through every area of our lives on this earth is that we know that he will come back. And so we're to sort of bring that hope with us as followers of Jesus. Everywhere we go, we bring that hope with us. We literally allow that hope to inform our outlook on our family life, to inform our outlook on our jobs and careers, our neighborhoods, our schools, our politics, our, 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 our hobbies, and even into the like, most private like, meditations of our hearts. We allow that hope to guide us. And so we're, we're to be this people who are literally so alive with excitement and anticipation of Jesus' return that we as the church live in such a way that we're constantly watching out for it. We're waiting for it. Like we're always ready for it. We're faithfully working in light of it. And what a hopeful people I think we would prove to be if in the midst of this hopeless and uncertain world that you and I live in, we would faithfully live in this joyful anticipation of Jesus' second coming, amen? So I've given you the whole end of the message, but let's look at the passage, um, because I, I, I've been praying that you could come to the, the, the same conclusion yourself this morning. I mean, like, my prayer for you is that you really do start to read Parse the scriptures for yourself. Like, come to a conclusion on your own, not because I've told you, but we've been studying the, the, the Gospel of Matthew together for, since last week, or uh, Matthew 24 since last week, the Gospel of Matthew for like 10 plus years. And uh, <laughs> last week we, we started 24, 
And these words were spoken because Jesus' disciples asked him, what would be the sign of his second coming? There's two questions. What would be the sign of your second coming and of the end of the age? And to answer their question, Jesus gives them the, sort of these general characteristics of, of the, the times that, that would precede his return. And so we looked at those last week. But Jesus deliberately leaves the things sort of vague as to giving these specific time, the specific time and the specific date. Like they didn't know any more about the date of his return than you and I do, except that we know that, that it wasn't in their day, that it didn't end up happening in their day, right? And so we tend to believe that he'll be coming soon in our day, but they believe that he'd be coming back soon as well, like in their day, 2,000 years ago. And so Jesus has basically given his followers only enough motivation to sort of motivate them with this expectation that he's going to come back. Like, you need to count on that. He will come back. And, And he inspires us with that, right? He inspires them to live in constant readiness, to always be prepared because it could be at any point and at any time. And so this leads us to the latter half of Matthew 24. So in this section, Jesus expands a little further on what he said and gives us a little more information about the the nature of the times in which he would return. And so Jesus gives two truths about the nature of of his return, and then he ends with these two commandments that we'll talk about in a little bit that sort of naturally follow from these, these two specific truths that he shares. And so he does this for a really practical reason, actually. He doesn't give us all the information we want in order to sort of satiate our curiosity about the future. But instead, what Jesus does is he gives us the information we need in order to transform the way that we live right now. You need to know that going into this. It's intentional. He didn't give you time or a day. But there's something that he's wanting to stir up in you that causes you to to, to want to be transformed, to change, to, to impact the trajectory of your life right now in case he does come. And so you look at Matthew 24, um, verses 31 through 52. Let's, let's read it together. He says this. Uh, sorry, 32 to 51. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near. At the very gates, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Listen to that. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, and one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect." 
Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place that will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Another Sunday that you're glad you came this morning, right? So Jesus in the prior passage before this, had, had, had just described his return, like in, in verses 29 to, to 31. And so he, he, to kind of elaborate on that, um, Jesus shares this, this example of the fig tree with his disciples. And, and what is it that Jesus is showing his disciples through this illustration? Two things. One, that the events surrounding Jesus' return will actually happen quickly. So verses 32 through 36. So as you guys were all driving here this morning, you probably saw a ton of trees. Anybody not see a tree on your way in here this morning? You, you moved to North Idaho for the trees, right? And the mountains and the lakes. In the fall, as you watch the trees in this area, um, they, they, they become bare. Like they lose all of their leaves, right? And in the fall around here, you see piles of leaves, orange leaves, it's beautiful all over the streets. And what does that tell us when we see those piles of orange leaves and the trees bare? It tells us that winter's on the way, that winter's to come, that there's something we should prepare for, right? And, and, and oddly enough, I was walking in this morning, this is kind of off subject, but like, there's a tree back here in front of this house that still has dead leaves all over it that never shed them. And I was like staring at that thing walking in this morning thinking, that's so odd. You know, it's still full of dead leaves. And in fact, like some of those leaves are still falling off, but it didn't go completely bare. And I was just thinking that's kind of crazy. But um, what we know when we see fall taking place and these, these leaves falling and they're, they're turning orange and they're falling off, we know that winter's on the way, that fall is here. And, and now, similarly, in the current season that we're in, like, any time now, you'll actually begin to see these bare branches begin to spout, sprout these little buds, and you'll see leaves starting to form on all of these trees around us, and that will actually tell us that summer's almost here, that summer's on the way. Like, it's, it's a sign of the times. Like, what an amazing thing that God has given us in his creation. And it was the same exact thing in Israel as Jesus spoke these words. Like, remember the setting where Jesus is sharing this with his disciples. I showed you the picture last week. He's on the Mount of Olives. This is called the Olivet Discourse. He's on Discourse. He's on the Mount of Olives. If you go to Israel today and you walk the Mount of Olives, um, besides there being tons of Jewish tombs all over the side of that hill, there's also a lot of olive trees. And there's also fig trees. And so Jesus is standing in a place where there were probably fig trees around him as he's sharing this illustration with his disciples. But with, with fig trees, um, people would often just go help themselves to the figs. Like you grab one, you want to eat one, you grab it off the tree. You, you, but first you would look at the tree and you'd see whether or not its branches were becoming tender, whether or not it was like actually putting out leaves. 
And it wasn't just to indicate that the food, like the, the, the fruit that it was producing was actually really good, but it was to indicate that actually summer was coming as well. Like there was a twofold meaning. And so Jesus lets us know that this, this sort of natural process actually displays the spiritual object lesson for you and I. Like just as certain changes in the fig tree sort of indicate this new season that's coming in a short amount of time, He's saying it will be the same with the events that Jesus described earlier that would indicate that his coming was near. And the surprising thing that Jesus shares is that though, though his people may have to wait centuries for these things to actually begin, they won't take centuries to be completed once they start. Like It'll come and it'll come quickly. And so when they begin to happen, the, 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 the completion of them, like the culmination of his return, will happen quickly. That's why we need to take heed of what exactly the season is and, and when it might be. We won't know the time or the hour, but we do know the season. And once it starts happening, his return will be so near that he says it will be at the doors, is what Jesus says, that it will be at the doors, like it's right there. And then Jesus speaking really, really seriously says to them, assuredly or, or truly, I say to you, he says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, what did Jesus mean by this generation? I mentioned this really briefly last week, but this is probably one of the most hotly debated passages in all of the Bible. In fact, uh, C.S. Lewis said this in his opinion of this passage, is that it was the, one of the most embarrassing verses in all of Scripture, is what C.S. Lewis says. So some people suggest that this generation that Jesus is referring to refers to specifically the Jewish people, that, that, that Jesus is leaving us with this, this implication that the, the Jewish people will endure to the end, and that in spite of all the chaos and the, the craziness and the wickedness in the world during the days of the tribulation, that the Jews will not be wiped off the face of the earth. That's one example. You, I would agree that that's probably implied there, but my opinion is that this whole context of this passage actually re requires that we understand Jesus to be saying that the generation of people who will be alive to see the beginning of these events will also live to see them. That that's this generation that Jesus is referring to. The ones who see the events will actually see the culmination and the return of Jesus with those events as well. Now what's sticky about this is that I'm 43 years old, um, been in around the church my whole life, and my whole life I've heard people give dates and times that he's coming back. Like it's been happening for hundreds of years. People have been saying, well, the signs of the times, it seems as though this is it. Here's what I know, like though we, we may think this is it, right? For centuries people have been saying that. But what we will know is this, I have no doubt that followers of Jesus will sense the time if they draw near to him and they know his voice. Like if we are committed to lives of prayer and knowing him, hearing from him, reading his words, spending time with one another, there's no way we'll miss it. We will know the season as it comes and it won't be something that we go, oh my gosh, you know, like get all the food ready, we gotta like hide out in the basement for a while. It will actually be something, in my opinion, that the church will anticipate. Like I said this last week, It'll be a day that our forefathers have talked about wishing they could have seen that maybe some of us will live in, maybe our kids will live in it, but what a sweet time for the church it will be 
when that time actually comes. So once these events begin, again, they they come quickly, and they don't fall short, like they, they are completed. And so they all will happen, and then the second coming of Jesus happens. And so Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but what does he say? but my words will not pass away. The the, the fact that his return will follow quickly after those times begin is more certain than heaven and earth itself, is what Jesus is saying. And the reality is that followers of Jesus are not to be like the people of this world who will look with fear and dread and uncertainty at those times because we're actually supposed to have a different perspective of the times than other people will. Jesus tells us in Luke that when these things begin to happen, he says, look up, lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. You're being delivered. Like, what an amazing thing. And so not only do, will these things surrounding Jesus' return come quickly and imminently, but then you also see uh, in verses 37 to 41 that the timing of his coming will actually be unexpected. It says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Listen to that. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one, one will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one left. I'm not even going to spend time on that verse because this is where people derive like a, a rapture um, theology from, this is one of the passages that they will use. I don't want to get into that. I want you to go read the Bible for yourself and I want to see holistically what is the purpose of the section that Jesus is speaking In the book of Genesis, in chapters 6 through 9, if you didn't grow up in the church, go back and read. Um, It talks about God looking upon the whole world and and him seeing the the wickedness that had basically permeated through the human race. And, and, And so God says that he would destroy the old world with a flood, like he was wiping it out. And so there's this man named Noah, and God gives this grace to, Mo, to, Moa, to Noah and his family, right, to preserve them. And so God commands Noah to build this ark. Noah's 500 years old. God commands him to build this ark at 500 years old. I don't think building an ark at 43 sounds fun. I don't know about 500. And so for 100 years, Noah works to, to construct this ark to the exact specs that God told him to. Noah was this living testimony to the people around him of that time that the judgment of God would actually come, that God would follow through with what he said. And Noah was faithfully working and building the ark. The writer of Hebrews says, by faith, Noah, he says, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So imagine, a hundred years of warning, and yet we're told that the people of that time looked upon Noah and what he was saying he was going to do, that God told him to do, and that they looked upon Noah with indifference. Like the Bible says that they mocked Noah for what he was doing. He was being faithful. What did everybody else keep doing during that time? They kept things business as usual. They acted as though nothing was happening. They they spent their lives really just focusing on their lives, doing normal stuff, eating and drinking. 
They, they literally did it all while Noah was faithfully building this ark. He looked like a fool. And so while, while Noah expressed to them the reality of what God had told him to do and what God was preparing him for, yet the people just end up making fun of Noah. They mock him, they ridicule him, they, they, they continue to engage in this normal life as though nothing at all was about to happen. They, they continue to live this way all the way up until the time where Noah actually gets on the ark. And then suddenly, when they weren't expecting it, the rain comes, the floodwaters take them all away, and they were unprepared. But who was prepared? Noah, who in faithfulness did exactly what God instructed him to do. And Jesus lets us know that it will be just like that when he returns, that, that people will ignore the signs of the time, that they'll carry on with business as usual, they, they won't realize that they're doing so while the end of the ages is nearly, as Jesus says, at the door. And then suddenly and unexpectedly, the day of the Lord will come, like Jesus' second coming will come. And it'll be this dramatic, this like startling event for all of humanity, something that will literally separate people, is what two men will be working, one out in the field, or working out in the field, one will be taken, one left, like yada yada. Then it will be like a separating event. Like you might say that the people of this world will have had at least 2,000 years of warning and yet suddenly judgment will, utter, will utterly catch the world off guard. First Thessalonians 5.3 says, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Like this sounds really harsh. But Jesus tells us that, that we, will know, we won't know the day or the hour, and, and that not even the angels of heaven will know that, but only the Father. So if not even Jesus knows the day or the hour, then think of how unexpectedly it will come upon those that aren't believers. Like, what a crazy thing. And Jesus tells us that we will know the events that are surrounding that time, that we will see the signs of the time, we will see the, the fig tree example that he, the tree's changing, like the season's changing, we will know what's coming, we'll know the season, but it'll happen quick and it'll happen unexpectedly, and that actually should impact the way we as his people live today. Even if that's 2,000 years down the road, What's the harm with living as though tomorrow's it? What's the harm? I had this crazy situation yesterday where um, uh, every now and then I go up and I speak at a, a chapel up on Schweitzer. They have the Schweitzer Chapel up there. And so they asked me to come up on Saturdays every now and then and share the message. Well, normally there's like a dozen people, maybe 20 people there. And, um, and, and it's a pretty small thing. But like I prepared for it, I was like ready to go in and preach. I'm literally stressed out in my car because I couldn't find internet and I couldn't get my notes to show up on my iPad. And I'm like sitting with my family in the car, I'm like, this is my worst nightmare. You know, the things I dream about at night are, are like me standing up before you and I don't remember what I'm gonna talk about and my Bible's not here and I've got no notes and I just watch you all start to leave. Like those are the things that I have nightmares about. And so like I'm sitting in my car and I look at Heather, I'm like, this is my worst nightmare. Like I can't get my notes. and. I walk into the chapel, and there's one person there, which I'm like, one person, you know, let's just call it good and go, you know, like, walk in, there's this one person, 17-year-old kid, the same age as my son, 
I said, what's your name? He said, told me his name. Nobody else showed up for the service, so it's just my family and this one kid. And um, he starts to, like, share his life with us. His parents aren't part of the church. They don't go to church. He decided to come by himself as a 17-year-old kid while his parents were in their condo. And uh, he just wants to try to make religion important in his life, is what he said. I'm like, this is pretty admirable, right? That this kid feels, senses something in his spirit that God is drawing him. And we had this amazing time. Like we, it was real short. We got to pray with this kid, and I walked away feeling like, oh, there was actually purpose in that. And yet, I can often live my life in such a way where I'm like, oh, one person, like, not worth it. You know, like, let's just move on. Oh, you know, like, if it's not going to actually produce something massive for the kingdom, then let's move on to the thing that does. Like, we need to reach thousands, you know, or whatever the excuse is in our lives. Like, if it's not going to produce something for me right now, then I'll put it away and I'll deal with it later in life. I mean, remember as a teenager, the whole joke was like, let's get our partying out of the way while we're young and then get serious about Jesus on the back nine of our life. You know what I mean? Like, that's our attitude sometimes, is deep down inside, we know that it's, there's potential of his coming. We know there's potential that what we read and what we hear is actually truth, but it hasn't happened for centuries. People have been saying this forever, and so I'm just gonna go on with my life, eating and drinking, getting married, enjoying myself and my time. And then the time will come. And my concern for the church is that we have the, the, this proclivity to like fall into the, this rut of just becoming so convinced that, that that's for later, that it does not impact what we do with our time or our lives right now. We're just waiting. People have always been waiting. So I'll continue to wait. And I might as well just partake in the fun of my life in the meantime. And yet there's not this urgency in us to understand the weight of what Jesus is sharing with them. Was Jesus telling this group like, hey guys, um, you know, I'm gonna tell you this, but you guys just live your lives and do what you wanna do because you know, it might be 2,000 years later before this happens and those people are the ones that are gonna have to get serious about it. So you guys do what you want and then you know, pray for the people 2,000 years from now. No, what Jesus is saying is it could come at any time. You won't know the time. You won't know the day or the hour. You'll recognize the seasons. At the end of the day, you need to be ready because it will come quickly and it will come unexpectedly. And he wanted them to be just as ready as he wants us to be today. So Jesus gives these two commands to his followers. Um, Verses 42 to 44, he says, Therefore stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Two things this shows us. One, that God's people should constantly be watching and ready for his return. Constantly. Like whenever I read this, I go back to this, this season in Heather and I's life where we lived in Seattle in the early 2000s and my wife and I had this car that was broken into like three times and was stolen once and it was just like this nightmare situation. Uh, every time it was broken into or stolen, um, 
you sort of wished you would have had a heads up that that was going to happen, right? Like, that would have been nice to know. I would have taken some stuff out of the car if I knew that that was happening. And every time it happened, it's like, oh, I wish I would have had just a little bit of a heads up, you know, that I would have made sure the face of that stereo was not on the stereo. That was back in the days when we had faces on stereos. Sorry. Um, (laughs) But you wish that you would have known because you would have prepared for that. You would have not allowed your most valuable things to be in the car when it got broken into if you knew that that was the case. As should be for us is that we should always be ready. Like if a man knew the hour that the thief was gonna break into his house, the man would actually watch for the thief, right? He would keep an eye open, like out the window all night long. He'd be hiding in the bushes. He'd be listening for things, trying to find the shadows, like constantly trying to assess the state of things, trying to figure out if, when that thing's gonna get broken into. Like he would protect himself from loss. Like that's just natural. That's what you would do. And Jesus is telling us that that, that our attitude with respect to his return needs to be similar to that, that we're to watch therefore, is what Jesus says. We're to be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. And it's surprising how many times in the Bible Jesus' return is compared to the coming of uh, the Uh, compared to the coming of a thief in the night. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. 2 Peter 3, 10, the apostle Peter writes, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Revelations 3, 3, the Lord says, behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches. Like, and in telling us these things and sharing these things with us, he's not saying that he's a thief who's coming to steal things, but that the world is gonna be taken off guard by his coming. But that that's not how it should be for you. That's what he's saying. The, the point of it all is that we're to constantly watch and be ready for his return. To not allow ourselves to be the ones who are caught off guard, to not be the, the people who are unprepared. A, a practical application of this is that we should make sure that we always live in such a way as we would want to be found by him in his return. The second commandment he gives us this, verse 45 to 51, that we should keep working on the things he's given us so that we will be found faithful. He says, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, listen to this, and begins to beat his fellow servants, like treat other people poorly, eats and drinks with the drunkards, does everything that everybody else is doing, then the master of that servant will come on a day when he doesn't expect him and in the hour he does not know, and it's gross, cut him into pieces, put him with the hypocrites, and that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But basically... You're not to be acting, doing, part of everything that everybody else is doing. You're to be living your life in such a way that you're preparing for him to come, that you will be found faithful when he returns. And I often think of this as a reminder to me, even as a pastor, um, to those who like, have this role to teach and to preach, because we'd better be faithful to teach God's word. We better be diligent to present ourselves as approved by God. 
and to rightfully divide the word of truth, as the scripture says. And what a horrible thing it would be to have the Lord suddenly come upon us and find that we were neglecting to feed the people the truth of his word. What a horrible thing. Relating that to all of us. The same command is applicable to all of us who follow Jesus because we're all in service to the Lord. We all need to be about his work. We need to make sure that we're found faithful to the tasks that he has given us in case he suddenly returns tomorrow. Like we often assume that we have a ton of time and so that we can do whatever it is we want now and then we will get serious about it later. But in doing that, we fall into the very trap that he warns us about in the closing of this passage. And so what should we do in the light of this fact? Listen to this. Peter says that we're to be faithfully doing our work. This passage, when I gave my life to Jesus, this next section I'm going to read you was the verse that I camped out in for like years after I gave my life to Jesus. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen? So two things that Jesus taught us about his return, that it will come upon this world quickly and unexpectedly, right? He warns us of these two things. And then don't forget how he encourages us to respond to these warnings. One, he says, watch and always be ready. Two, that you're to keep faithful to the work that is entrusted to you. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up. And I want to end this like fairly simply. Spending some time this week trying to figure out, as we talked in sermon group, like what does it mean to be ready? What does it mean to watch? What are the practical side of that? I mean, it'd be very easy for me as a pastor to stand up and be like, you need to read your Bible more. You need to pray more. You need to be at every church function. You need to serve at everything. You need to love your wife. You need to, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. You go down the list of all these things, these sort of tasks I could give you. But in a nutshell, when I think about like, what it means to be ready and to be alert, you've got to be a people who are drawing near to Jesus, to hear from him, to recognize the signs. How, honestly, if, if you hadn't read this Bible, how would you know what the signs are to look out for? How would you know? You wouldn't. The people that are caught unexpectedly are the ones who've either never read, never been taught. And yet God has given you, he's entrusted you with this gift, his word. I think that's a huge part of it. The other thing is that he's entrusted you with his Holy Spirit. And if it's his spirit that lives within us, that becomes our counselor, our helper, our guide, how can we go wrong? The problem is that so many Christians live a life void of being directed by the spirit at all. We live lives of just like doing the right things and going to the right places and being around the right people 
without actually spending time understanding that the spirit of the living God lives within you and you actually can draw from the spirit of God. Like he can inform your ways, your paths, your decisions. He is the one who directs your life. It's not everybody else. And at the end of the day, like I really hope we do feel some sort of urgency as a church to live as though tomorrow's our last. Because if he doesn't come tomorrow, there's a real good chance that you might not make it till tomorrow. One way or the other, you're not guaranteed another hour. And that's not to scare you. That's just to say, how are you living now? Do you live with that anticipation, that expectation of what's to come? And how hope-filled that day will be. Like, I cannot wait till the day that Jesus returns cannot wait but does that inform how we actually live our lives now will you guys stand with me one really practical thing I'll end with this I was thinking about what's coming in a few weeks. Easter, right? And I was thinking about the fact that, you know, I don't care much about, like, our our elders will sometimes refer to it as butts and bucks. Church is not about tons of money and tons of people. That's not what it's about. It's about life transformation happening in others. Jesus actually meeting somebody where they're at and changing their life, their trajectory forever. And as I think about Easter in a few weeks, I was thinking about the simple fact that if you knew that there was one message that could be shared with all of humanity to the end of your days that would literally guard people from the potential judgment in the end, but also prepare them to see the seasons and be ready and anticipate the arrival of Jesus themselves. What's the one message you'd want people to hear? The message of Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection, right? That they would accept Christ and respond to that gift that he's given them, new life. And in a few weeks, like we have this amazing opportunity it's where... We get to look at our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and say, like, do you, do you know why we celebrate Easter? Like, what it actually means? Do you know what's actually taking place? Do you want to come to church with us on that day to just hear that message for yourself? Like, to meet some other believers? Like, who wouldn't want people to be surrounded by people that love Jesus for the rest of their lives on this earth to help prepare them for what's ahead? That should be our hearts. And yet, so it's so easy for churches to become very insulated and sort of like, that's my church. You know, it's like my thing, and those are my people. If you had one message that could change a life forever, would you not want people to hear it? And you do. What an awesome thing. The next few weeks, my challenge to you, will you prayerfully consider how you're going to share that message of Easter with people who do not know Christ? How will you share that? Will you pray for opportunities like the 17-year-old kid that we had yesterday sitting in the chapel with us while I'm frustrated and like, I'm not sure if you know, I want to do this, I don't have time for this, and I'm frustrated with my notes and everything else. God puts the 17-year-old kid in front of you and you go, what a gift. I don't want to miss the gift. 
Some of you are living your lives now as though you do what you want because eventually you'll be able to get ready. And I'd encourage you this morning to draw near to Jesus, to learn what it means to live a life of anticipation and expectation, to be ready now so that you're not caught off guard when that time comes because Jesus is coming back. Amen. He is. Like, we know that with certainty from this message. So let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you for your church. And um, God, I continue to pray that you, Lord, would stir us up. And when I say that, God, I just mean that the uncertainty, the fears, all the stuff that the world wants to keep on us, God, that we be stirred up to be a people that knows that no matter what's thrown against us, no matter how crazy things get, there's a hope beyond our human experience here on this earth that actually anchors us to something greater, Lord. And I pray for each person in this room because I don't know where they're at, what they came from, what they're going home to, but I know there's people in this room that are legitimately hurting, that are seeking answers, that are questioning God, that find themselves in a lot of pain and they don't know where to turn. And yet this morning, as we talk about this, maybe if there's one thing they could take home is that there's this God that literally has paved a way for them, that is calling them to himself, this God that sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for their sins, to cover over all of their sins, all their error, God, to make them righteous, to make them holy, has called them to him to set them apart to fill them with his Holy Spirit, to set their trajectory for their life on a path that continues to grow and mature in their relationship with you. And this morning, Jesus, I pray if there's people here that don't know you, that they take that first step this morning and just calling, calling upon you, Jesus, come save me. Jesus, rescue me, deliver me. You know where I'm at. For those of us in this room, God, that have just lived as Christians and fall so easily into the trap of complacency and stagnancy in our lives, I'm just praying that this morning we would be stirred up, that there'd be something in us, that we'd recognize this amazingness of what lies ahead and the fact that Jesus, it should inform the way we live now. And so I pray your hand be upon your church. I pray you'd bless each person in this room as we leave this place. May we be a beacon of light and of hope and of love and grace and peace and joy to the city that you've placed us in. God, would people see Christ in us? Would we be proponents of the gospel that invite other people into the story as well to have a relationship with you? And I pray, Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would empower us to live as though you're coming back, Jesus. And so I pray your blessing upon your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.